0: Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to season three of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. So, I am completely delighted to introduce Rosie Jones. We haven't actually met before, but I feel like I know her because I've listened to so much of her work and read her wonderful children's books. So, Rosie is 32, a comedian, a scriptwriter, actor, and children's author. And I love this quote. She's got a new tour, Triple Threat Tour, that she's in the middle of. And the quote that I read that really made me laugh was, seldom can an hour and a prick's company be more enjoyable. <laughs> well- <laughs> so, well, Rosie Jones, welcome to the Therapy Works podcast. <laughs> Hello,
1: are you ready for that? Uh- Enjoyable hour with a prick. (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) with a prick who is a woman who is gay, who has a disability. So (laughs) there's a lot going on (laughs) in that sentence. And then we
1: were chatting slightly before, and saying. Where do we go? I feel like there's a million routes we could go down and I am ready to take it on.
0: <laughs> you are amazing. You have incredible energy. I mean, my first question to all of my guests, which I know you've listened to the, the podcast, mm, is yeah. what is a particular challenge you are facing or have faced. And I guess in some ways one might guess it, but I actually think with you, I wouldn't be able to guess it.
1: Um, This was hard for me, and I feel like the obvious is my cerebral palsy. Yeah. But a better way to sum up Everything yeah. it is constant optimism and thinking about my childhood mm. and my disability was a big part of that. Yeah. My survival skill mm. had to be... Hello! I'm Rosie! I'm happy! Don't worry! You may be a bit awkward around me, but I'll take on your load. I'll take on right. your worries yeah. and I'll change your mind about me and hopefully disabled people in general. Um And again, we'll get on to it later and I need to say how grateful I am for my job my life and how I get to go out every day and make people happy. But again, that constant optimism and now doing it on a larger scale, it's
0: always...
1: Oh, they yaked. Oh,
0: shit. I mean, I was crying (laughs) when I was listening to you. Just the challenge every day of waking up with a disability, with cerebral palsy, and then on top of that, having to transmit yourself as this incredibly optimistic, easy person in order to try and diss their prejudice, their assumptions, their instinct to step away from you. It just is so heartbreaking, your childhood having to do that. And also, it is the thing that is bloody exhausting, even more so on a public stage. But it also is a massive skill that has enabled you not just to survive, but to be extremely successful.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I need to say that now, as a comedian, I have such a skill of putting an audience at ease immediately Yeah. but it's come from the fact that I had to.
0: Yeah. So what's the underbelly of having to be optimistic, having to kind of try and change my mind about you before you virtually said a word. Just as I see you walking towards me, you have to change my mind, my judgment. What's the cost of that for you?
1: I'm learning to get over this. Yeah. But I I feel slightly angry. Yeah. That um people See something about me that they presume is a big thing, um, and it's not. It's not even one percent of who I am. So I feel angry that strangers make. A, why you'd incorrect assumption yes. about me, how I live and who I am?
0: And I would be absolutely furious. And for me, kind of stepping into your world and getting to know you, I can see clearly that you are not your cerebral palsy. You are Rosie Jones. You are sexy. You are probably difficult. You are funny. You're clever. All of those things. But being seen as like 99% as Rosie Jones who has cerebral palsy mm. is so diminishing isn't it and it's so like yeah it's just such an awful wall that you you can't get through that you have to somehow yeah. find a way of getting through
1: yeah and i am committed to um, what I find fascinating is my comedy is quite rude, yes, quite sweary, fiery, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of the content, it's quite general and feel like everyone can get on board with it especially starting out because i feel like seeing my comedy it's not only an evening of jokes to some people it's a little window into what it's like To be disabled. So I feel like I'm always constructing my comedy and my anecdotes in a certain way that I don't think one of my male non disabled comedians had to do. They can go out and go, hello, and John, and then choose what they disclose. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, it really makes sense in the sense that you have to shape... Your whole performance, in order to get over the barrier of other people's assumptions, because you want them to see you and connect with you. Unlike a John, a white able-bodied man who can just say to himself well you get me already you know me already you like me already so I can say what on earth I like whereas you're starting from three feet back like you're worried about me or you're you're judgmental of me or and so I have to get you to like me first and that shapes your comedy I might argue with that a bit in that because you're sweary and honest, you shape it, but it feels truthful. It doesn't feel performative or that you're trying to please. It feels you.
1: No, it really, it really is me. But um, I'm, again... I think it's a chicken or the egg situation. I think even it I were non-disabled, I'd still be happy, loud, rude, optimistic, but... I cannot go on stage and have a Jack D pessimistic persona because oh, that's nobody will get on board with a disabled woman who goes out going, hello, I hate. I hate. I I don't have that option to do that.
0: That is so fascinating that you have to be optimistic and funny and kind of uh, encouraging. You can't be grim and miserable because no. because no. if you put miserable with disabled, you lose people. Yeah. Whereas if you put optimistic with disabled, you might draw them in. Just to take it back a bit further, so that skill we talked about at the beginning, I'm wondering the influence of your parents in enabling you to develop that skill, like going into your first playgroups or school. How did your parents help you?
1: I mean... Before I start, I need to say that my mum and dad are incredible. They never said no to me, they never made me feel lesser or they just treated me like every other child.
0: Um, Can I just check? Do you? Do, sorry, Rosie, to interrupt you, but do you do you have able bodied siblings?
1: Yes. So I have my mum and dad, and non disabled, and my brother growing up. My is five years younger than me, and he was. Non-disabled, but he's recently been diagnosed with ADHD, which makes his entire childhood make sense. Uh, um, ah, yeah. And it was, it wasn't picked up. Because he wasn't naughty. He would just sit there and run around and get distracted. Um, But it was very funny when my brother got diagnosed last year. And my mum said, Oh, I love. Both my disabled children. I love my super quick son and my super
0: slow daughter. Oh, (laughs) your mum. Oh, my goodness, I love her already. What a
1: woman. She... I am who I am because of her and my dad and I feel like from a very young age we used humour and we would sit round the table eating and laughing for hours. (laughs) So that's where the humour comes from and and goodness, I bought, yeah, there has but, to be a but, uh, well,
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm crying like a baby <laughs> here, by the way. Just <laughs> it's such a lovely image, your mum and dad. I mean, yeah, and of course, there's a but. So, tell us the but.
1: <laughs> um, I think I've recently started, um. Therapy at uh, myself, mm. and a big part of it is everyone in my life my mum, my dad, my brother growing up, friends they were all non disabled. Yeah. I Growing up, I was the only one, and therefore, it was up to me to educate them about disability, and i I'm a workaholic. I work all day, every day, and I think through therapy, I have learned that that is because nobody in my childhood set me boundaries because Everything I did was amazing. Like, my parents had no idea the extent of my disability. They didn't know I'd be able to walk until at four years old I said to my mum, Mummy, I want to walk now. Mm. And I went out there and I did it. And then I said, Mummy, not mummy, but at 18, Mum, I'm going to university. Okay, Mum... I'm moving to London. Mum, I'm going to be a comedian. And at any stage, they had to say yes, because I'm a stubborn (laughs) bugger, and they knew I would have done it anyway. And... They are lovely people, but because they didn't know about disability, there's an alternative world in which I'd be still 32 living at home with them too working at the local shop, and they would have been happy and proud of me. So f- for my father, I can remember, I had to set my boundaries. Your goals. Because, yeah, no-one had any expectation of me apart yeah. from me.
0: Yeah. Well, it's extraordinary of you that in some ways you took yourself by the scruff of your neck and even age mm-hmm. four said, I'm yeah. going to do this, I'm going to do that, and that you have this buggering attitude to do it but i also can imagine the emotional toll of that and the weight of that that you didn't have someone beside you saying let's look at see if you can do this what can we mm. do to help you do that because yeah unless you are disabled you kind of don't know the challenges you were facing and and they yeah. didn't want to i guess put expectations on you in order for you to feel yeah. inadequate but then if people have limited expectations, you have limited outcomes. So you had to keep moving yeah. the boundaries and pushing. But it's quite lonely. Yeah. And what I'm really aware of is the weight of the work of doing this on your own as a child, as a 10-year-old, as a teenager, and that that child is still in Rosie Jones now, like that stubborn, yeah. kind of quite lonely Very determined, slightly obsessed, driven child, and having her in you bossing you about is emotionally exhausting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think you've hit the nail on the head in that I need to stretch, but I have the Best family. Yes. I had so many friends. I love my job. I am so happy. But something that I need to get over is when I am sad or when the shit hits a fan. I keep it to myself because, and I don't know if that is me or my disability, but I have a problem being a burden on other people because I think... Society expects me to be a burden and therefore I sort it out on my own. So for example, last year I was doing a documentary about ableism and online abuse, um, and I was stopping dating a woman I really cared about. So it felt like a few different things <laughs> had kicked off. And what I did was I... Found a favorite therapist and it was only then that I could say, Right, don't worry, I'm fine, I've been sad, but I'm sorting it out. So it's almost like I've got to have my answer before I tell somebody I've had a problem.
0: That is such a brilliant insight, Rosie, that you can't go to someone being a burden, carrying a burden, asking for help. Even paying a therapist to go to a therapist to sort yourself out, you arrive with the solutions. And I hope through the therapy that you're learning the reverse, that therapy is about like sitting and kind of moving internally to examining and exploring what is really going on, what is really upsetting me, hurting me, what is influencing me, and how do I feel about that?
1: Yeah, and I really like it, but there is a part of me that still tries To make my therapists laugh and try to be entertaining, and that is the part that she keeps saying, No, stop doing that, you're not performing to me today. but yeah, it's 32 years that just happened to be the reassurer and the one who goes, Hello, and disabled. I talk like this, but don't worry. Here's three jokes. See, great. Yeah, yeah, find me funny, and that way you can all relax.
0: Thinking about your therapist and and her sort of saying, um, you don't have to perform for me and be funny, what I'm thinking, and, and she's absolutely right, of course she is, is that it's not yeah. about not having that default response because that's damned well worked for you. It's got you, you yeah. know, it's bought you a flat for one thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but it's <laughs> about developing, it's using your default model when it's useful for you but having options of different ways of being in different environments with different people so that you have access to your kind of deepest vulnerability and confusion and fury or exhaustion with the right people who you can trust who you can express yourself to and then go and put on a damn show at triple threat tour and Be the performative one, so that you can move in and out of different versions and ways of being. It's the thing that's exhausting is only having one fourth gear model, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that is physically and mentally exhausting. Totally exhausting because on top of that, again and. I love a caveat. Mm. So before (laughs) I say this, I want to say it's so lovely and I feel very lucky that I get recognised. But now I'm at a point where every shop I go in, every cafe, Every time I leave my flat, I get recognised, which is lovely, but I get a certain level and that people feel like they know me. So they will hug me, they I will gosh. sit, down at my table, they will talk to me for 10, 20 minutes. Rosie. And it's out now, I feel like when I close my phone door and leave the house, I am prepared performing yeah. because everyone and that is how I walk and how I talk. So people are already looking and then they go, oh it's crazy. I never yeah um and I always joke that People recognise me, but they are never starstruck. They greet me like a friend. They go, are you, Rosie? (laughs) Um, And that is so lovely. But when it's all day, every day, and I cannot go to my local cafe in my hoodie and feel miserable because I don't know who's about to come in.
0: Yeah, that is exhausting, isn't it? The sort of exposure and the demand to perform and this idea that, you know, they're not starstruck and stand back they know you and move into you. I mean, the idea of a stranger coming up to hug you or sit in, at your table for 10 or 20 minutes, I mean, the intrusion of that, that they wouldn't yeah. do with the person next door who they've never met, but it is an extraordinary thing, fame, isn't it? Or being a, a sort yeah. of well-known. It's somehow people really... Form a relationship with you, and that is a big part of your purpose, isn't it? Is educating yeah. people, kind of changing people's minds, but again, it's a personal cost.
1: And I love it, I yes, love yes, it. I get I got
0: but, your caveat, I got your caveat,
1: but then we're back to the constant optimism,
0: yeah. Where are you it's allowed shame. to be miserable,
1: yeah. It's so one of my heroes, of course, is Kathy Burke, and she said recently in an interview when she gets recognised and she doesn't want want to deal with it. She'll go, oh, why don't you fuck off? <laughs> and I feel that like she can get away with that because they will go away going, oh my God, yes, Kathy but told me to fuck off Why us. Again, maybe we're back to my persona and my disability, but I think I'd be doing something quite damaging if I didn't meet them with the optimism Mm. that they want from me.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. Can we change direction, Rosie? Can I talk yes. to you about dating? Rosie's challenges yeah. in dating. I have no idea about your challenges in dating, so this is from an area of complete ignorance.
1: Um, It's interesting. Again, I I'm gay. I came out when I was twenty-eight. Twenty-eight—that's
0: quite late. Had yeah, you had? Had you yeah. had boyfriends?
1: No, no. I had. Um, kissed a lot of boys. Usually, when I felt. Especially in Denial, I would go out and kiss five boys in one night because I would go, Yay, I'm not gay, <laughs> I kiss five boys. Men. Yeah, um, but then we're back. To representation on TV of disability and how I never saw a character with a disability depicted as being. Gay or sexual or, or sexy. Bit. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think for a lot of my 20s, I knew I was gay, but I thought there's no point coming out because. I'm disabled, like, no woman would find me attractive. But I gave myself a real talking to. As you do, Rosie. Yeah, yeah. I gave myself a big pet talk. I thought, no, I deserve love and I am sexy and I feel that now. Um, and I do go out, I do date, I dated uh, an amazing woman for the whole of that shit. But now I'm at a point where I'm looking. I mean, if Jodie Comer rings me up, I'll be right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, me <But> too.
1: <laughs> at, the... <laughs> at the moment, with my books, with work, Women at all. It really isn't a priority. And what I feel healthy about is if you talked to me five years ago, I would have said I'm single but I want to find someone, I need someone, I just don't think I'll be truly happy until I meet that partner. Whereas now, and you might disagree with me, but I hand on heart, Feel like I could be single forever and be happy because I know that a if someone comes along, I'm ready, I'm sexy, and know I'm a great catch, but b my life is so full of great friends, amazing people, a job that I couldn't even dream of as mm. a child. I don't feel like I need another person to validate this incredible life.
0: And of course, I completely validate what you're saying, Rosie. I mean, you know yourself best. You're the expert on you. And you're clearly saying, I am full and I'm happy. And I know that I am sexy and attractive and that anyone who dates me is lucky, I suppose if I was your therapist, the only thing I would interrogate is, is there a risk of having broken up with a wonderful woman from last year, being busy and doing something that you're good at, that you have some agency and control over, dating, you make yourself much more vulnerable. Is there a defense that you are um, ignoring because you don't want to be hurt again.
1: Oh, no. Oh, you're good, aren't <laughs> you? <laughs> I
0: am. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, I said last week, I, on Tuesday, I performed at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow. yeah, the most incredible venue. And I said to my friend, what does it say about me that I'm not remotely nervous about performing at the Albert Hall? but I could not be more shitting myself about a date i going on at the weekend and that really sums it up. Yes. I am at home on stage in front of thousands of people because I feel in control. Completely. Whereas one-on-one and being vulnerable... And intimate. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't like saying someone else is right, but I think (laughs) (laughs) that is... Absolutely correct, and definitely something I need to work on.
0: And given that you always overwork, maybe the reverse is true and you can just step back and let it be rather than get your spade out and start digging because that's what you always Mm. do. Maybe this time you can just trust or kind of let yourself yeah. be open without forcing anything because that would be counter intuitive for you but it also might mean that you spontaneously respond rather than because all you know how to do rosie is to climb up that mountain with your pickaxe and push yeah. and push and i guess the psychological piece is Can I let myself be rosy by just being me with all of my gifts and my insecurities and my imposter syndrome and my disabilities and my strengths and my gloriousness? Can I just let that be without having to push it up a bloody mountain?
1: And I think that's a scary part. It's almost like... I'm halfway up that mountain every now and again. Can I take my pickaxe, stand up and be still without tumbling to the bottom?
0: That is a beautiful, beautiful description. And that image... I would hold if I was you, as an image, as a something to reflect on in private moments. Is—is this a moment I can stand on that mountain, unhook my pickets, and just let myself stand? And Rosie, we've we're coming to the end. What a wonderful conversation! I want you to tell people where they can find you.
1: Well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. On at Josie Rounds. And if you want to see me on TV, all you need to do is turn on your telly <laughs>
0: because <laughs> you're
1: everywhere. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, I'm on every <laughs> TV show, and you are welcome.
0: <laughs> that is completely wonderful.
1: I want to say thank you so much for creating an environment where I felt so safe that I could be honest with you because I feel like in a lot of podcasts and my TV shows, I got to have this armour up and be there. Total no-nonsense go-getter. So I feel like for this hour, you've really allowed me to take down my pickaxe.
0: Oh, Rosie, I feel so moved by you, and I... (sighs) I've really been touched by this conversation. I don't cry in sessions very often. You got me crying a number of times. And it's from your authenticity that I cry because you're so clear and so truthful in what you're feeling and what you're saying. And there's something for me about really recognizing that your strengths include the cost of your disability but your strengths must also include your capacity for you not to be strong you know that you can just collapse and be miserable yeah um yeah and that feels really important
1: yeah and uh for like I feel constantly learning more about yourself and I feel like now I do know who I am. Oh, I, do. I need, I need to learn more about and I need to, um, be comfortable in the fact that I don't need to be the optimistic bionic bunny all day, every day.
0: No, to learn not to be the bionic bunny all day, every day would be a really good thing. <laughs> and on that note, fabulous Rosie Jones, thank you so, so much what a wonderful conversation
1: thank you i truly loved it
0: me too one of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode i get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters sophie and emily Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything, but let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Emily and Soph. Lovely to see you. And we're going to talk about the wonderful Rosie Jones and the conversation I had with her.
2: I really loved listening to her and, as she said, worked very hard to make herself likable and um, easy to listen to and engaging. And she's very, very successful at it from my perspective. I just found it, you know, so open and authentic. Um, I did think it was quite funny that Mum. your opening sentence was to her was that you hadn't met her, but you felt like you knew her. And then she said, you know, one of the challenges that she has is that people often feel like they know her and that can actually cause some of its own issues in terms of like boundaries that people don't necessarily adhere to that they would with somebody else or somebody who is a different kind of famous and I couldn't help but notice you were like but I feel like I know you
0: that is really interesting isn't it yeah
2: and I guess it
3: speaks to one of the things I was thinking about she spoke so movingly I thought about the struggle like the depth of the struggle of as a, a disabled woman having to sort of curate her behavior to put other people at ease and how hard she has to has had to work to kind of allay everyone else's worries and that i think that's it always the burden of that is greater on marginalized groups because there's sort of more projections onto people about what kind of person they are, aren't they and then i was also thinking about to some extent in sort of lesser ways we kind of all walk around with an outside that people have certain expectations about who we're supposed to be by the way that we look, by our voice, by our whatever, the way we dress, all those things, where you live, where you went to school, there's all these characteristics that other people then project certain qualities onto you, finding them out um, or seeing them. And how we all have that longing to just be seen and that that is one of the kind of core, hopefully, like, powerful magic of therapy is that if the relationship is good, you get a chance to be seen as you feel that you are more than how other people think you are or imagine there or project onto you. Um, And it felt to me that she was talking about like the struggle to be seen, which is something that, although her experience is unique, it's also something that we all kind of long for.
0: And also just to add into that is that we can take on the habitat, if you like, of how other people see us. And that can become a kind of persona that feels like a false self that we don't like. Mm. And that how therapy can be incredibly powerful is restoring ourselves back to our kind of, I don't know if there's a true self, but the self that you kind of find yourself to be.
3: Or shedding the parts that don't fit well, you know that either used to and don't anymore or or never liked and wished you could have got rid of but somehow held on to.
2: Mm. And also, I think it's really about the multitude of selves that we all have, right? You might have this sort of exterior that people see you as and it doesn't fit, but it probably fits to a certain degree. But what isn't seen is all the other parts of yourself that you also have. So I think it's about... Not just sort of being seen, but it's being seen in your full complexity and multitudes of the ways that you are. I think when you have a much more visible disability, then you have to work that much harder for people to see the other parts of yourself that aren't your disability. And I thought that it was so interesting that the challenge that she said was not the cerebral palsy, but it's other people's reactions to the cerebral palsy that she's had to basically navigate her whole life and has formed part of how she is to a certain degree.
3: And how much we all do the projection too. So there's both like the struggle to be seen, but there's also the fact that we all do it to everybody else all day long. Like we, have, our brain just loves a good shortcut about filling in the kind of picture of who somebody is. Like I really noticed it once when I worked with a client who didn't refer to anybody in their life as having a gender. Everybody was a they in the sessions. And it really made me notice how much I just do some sort of automatic coloring in my head just by knowing someone's gender. And that those little things that we just sort of shortcut about how we sort of imagine somebody is in a story that are these kind sort of kind of broad characteristics. So it's both the awareness of how we want to be seen in our complexity, but also what we do to, we do that to others all the time.
0: And in doing it to others, we give them permission to be or have particular talents or not have particular talents and judgments and limits both in ourselves and in other people. This whole thing of assumptions that we make is incredibly diminishing.
2: I think it's diminishing and I think it can have really huge consequences. I um, think that adults with a disability have are five times more likely to have mental health issues. And I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons for that. So I'm sure like if you're in chronic pain or you can't do the things that you want to do physically, that really impacts your mental health. But I also think it's because we live in a society that's designed for the majority and whether you have a visible disability or a non-visible disability often the world is not designed for you and therefore everything is more challenging whether that's you have a physical disability and just navigating space is more difficult or whether you're on the autism spectrum and actually just being out in the world is incredibly overwhelming and you're having to face that every day. Um, So I think it has a really really significant effect on your mental health as well.
3: And to the end, I think I would say it's not about them beating yourself up for having those judgments because I think it's a very intuitive part of our brain to want to label and categorize. It's just being aware of it and and realizing that you can just let those judgments go and to pay more attention, to be more curious about the other person's experience, to listen rather than assume we're all going to have those initial things because it's just part it's of and. how our brains yeah. work. It's both and. So it's not about being like, what a terrible person we all are, but it is about realising how how to navigate that in ourselves with other people and how quickly we prefer the security of judgement and knowing than the not knowing and being curious and open to how it might be different. Hmm.
2: And I think it goes both ways, though, because I think it also... For people, for example, like I was saying, who are on the autism spectrum, who then feel like they're doing something wrong or they're bad, to to also know, no, it's not that you are doing something wrong. It's that you're having to exist in a world that was mostly designed for neurotypical people. And so you're having to overcome that challenge all of the time. And that is inevitably going to be really difficult. So both sides
3: yeah, and I think that's true over and over again. If you're not the norm in something, whether it's you're the elderly or you're a minority, all of those that applies in all those spaces, doesn't it? That would sign for a body type, right? If your body's that type is outside of the norm or not the norm, outside of the agreed ideal or the majority.
0: I think that's incredibly useful a way of kind of looking at the world, ourselves and others in the world. The only other thing I'd love to look at again that we did with Ruby Wax is the power of humor and how that can be a dissolver of boundaries, of assumptions that somehow we if, I mean, it took a lot of work with Rosie in particular, but also is a natural part of her as well. Again, so if in your terms of our brain, our brain seeks optimism, doesn't it? It seeks to kind of have a happy place and that humor connects us and devol- dissolves Judgments. I don't know if either of you had any thoughts about that.
2: And I think there's something a bit subversive about being somebody with a physical di- disability who then is incredibly funny and quite rude and sexy and all of those things. Because I think our stereotype is often victim and not power yeah. And I think it's so powerful to be funny in quite a dark, subversive way. So it, it kind of inverts the stereotype.
3: Yeah, I love that patterning is such a natural appeal for the brain and the thing that humor does and why things are funny is because it's a disruptor of patterning right often jokes are like dun da dun da dun, da da bah. you know they're like not what you're expecting and that's what's really funny because they are the disruptor of patterns and in that sense a disruptor of a pattern of stereotyping and i think part of its power isn't it is to rip up what you thought was true humor is part of attraction is a very common thing that people cite on their like, list of what makes them find someone attractive. And frankly, statistically, particularly women, list humour, sense of humour, as a high rate of... Um, that is an important factor in attractiveness.
2: Mm. But I also wonder if it's something to do with relatability, that people feel connected when someone is funny and they can like relate to the humour, that there's something in the joke that they connect to.
3: I don't know if this is true, but I imagine it's a big oxytocin releaser. Must be. Yes. Thank you, Rosie
0: Jones, so much and everyone for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast and you think somebody might enjoy it too, do share it, subscribe, rate and review. I look forward to the pod next week.